0: We're diving in. We're in the last week of our series about managing and taking care of your soul. And, uh, and I shared with you, we've been about four or five weeks talking about this, um, that really where this came from is about two years ago, I, uh, I was gifted uh, this book, Soul Keeping, which has been for me one of the most impactful books of the last couple of years besides the scriptures that I've read because it forced me to ask some questions that I had not asked previously. And uh, I'm just going to be honest with you. I stand in front of people and I talk about your soul all the time. But if someone had told me and put me in a corner and said, identify exactly what the soul is, I would have squirreled a little bit. I would have said, well, it depends on if you read this or if you believe this or what you heard about this. But we all know the soul is something. We know it's something. Here's how we know it's something. Because none of us are looking for our life mate. We're looking for our soul mate. We understand that when we eat comfort food and it makes us feel good, that that's soul food. We know it's a thing. We know it's an adjective. We know it exists. But what does it look like? I just rode on an airplane. And when you get on an airplane, the pilot says, There's 296 souls on board. We know that we're more than just our bodies. There's something more to us than that, and that it's important. But here's the thing if we know that that's true, and we know that we're more than that, and we know that we were designed for that, and we know that our souls matter, and that there's something important and unique, that when God reached down into the earth, He formed man out of the mud, and then He breathed into the man, and the man became a living soul, that the soul is something and it's critical and it's important, but we don't know what to do with it. And we don't know how to care for it and we don't know what it needs. And so for the last several weeks, we've been diving into that. If you're just jumping in, you can catch up uh, on the podcast if you want to. But we have talked about um, what the soul is, um, what attacks and and damages the soul, how, uh, how compartmentalizing our lives actually harms our soul. The soul wants unity and harmony in our lives. It wants our body and our mind and our spirit to be moving in the same direction. And the soul holds all those things together. And when we're moving that way, our soul can be healthy. And then we talked about, how uh, how sin and bad choices, bad decisions wanna creep in and rend our uh, our souls, want us to believe one thing but behave another thing and how that inconsistency really harms and does pain in our soul. And we live in a state of being a fragmented lost soul and how what Jesus came to accomplish uh, was, was so that we could be integrated, fully integrated, our minds, our hearts, our bodies, all moving the same direction, our relational cores, all moving the same direction to accomplish what God's called us to do. And then we've talked about some of the things like the maintenance things, the maintenance lights that come on in your soul. Like, you know, when your gas light comes on in your car, you know, some, some of you, your gas light never comes on because you're like me. A Quarter tank is empty. So you just take care of it. But some of you are, you know, at a quarter tank, you look at or at the gas light comes on and you're like, oh, I know my car. I'm fine, I got some time, right? I got some time, I got some time. I know my car, right? Some of you are that way. But a light comes on and it's to indicate for you, hey, there's some maintenance required. You got a low tire. Um, Basically, I know about tires and gas when it comes to a car, so that's all I got. The other lights come on and I got to go take it in and plug it into a machine and someone has to tell me what's wrong with it. Come on now. But I know there's something going on there. And we've been talking about things that are lights that go off for your soul, warning lights to just cause you to make sure that you are managing and caring for your soul, doing the maintenance. So we talked about rest and how the soul needs rest. We were designed to experience life in a state of work and then rest. And when we don't rest and we don't care for our soul, it fragments our soul. We talked about freedom. How the soul needs freedom it needs the ability to break free from the sin and the weight that so easily entangles it that so often we run into this tension of does God want me to come to a place of obedience or does he want me to be free and I don 't know how to manage those things and we talked about how do we navigate those tensions of having a God in heaven who has a plan for our lives and wants something that's best for us but we're still experiencing desperately in need of freedom and we talked about that and today we are going to land the plane so to speak and talk about about how the soul needs gratitude. The soul needs gratitude. The soul needs to be in a state of appreciation and recognizing what it has and what it doesn't need. You know what's interesting is in the scriptures, oftentimes people talk to their soul in like third party. David was one who did that and recognized that. As, fact, as a matter of fact, in Psalm 42, he said something powerful. He, he began to, in, in a moment of introspection, look at his soul, the state of his life, the core of his being, and he said, why are you downcast, oh my soul? Why are you so disturbed within me? We recognize that sometimes, even though the exterior of our life looks okay, if someone were to just size us up, they'd go, yeah, they're doing okay. Health-wise, they're maybe okay. Relationship-wise, seems like they have enough people. You know, they're paying all their bills. They don't look in a state of distress. But if someone was to look on the inside of you, they would see a whole different picture. They would see a whole emotional state that didn't balance with the outside projection that you're putting out there. And David was one who was very good at getting to the heart of the matter when it came to that and saying, listen, I understand that on the outside, things are looking okay, but I know me on the inside, And something isn't right. Something's off. Something's not working. Why is my soul so downcast? One of the key reasons is because it needs gratitude. It needs gratitude. What do you mean, Pastor Mike, it needs gratitude? I'm glad you asked. It needs gratitude. It needs to understand so often what God has done so it can appreciate the moment that it's in right now. The hard thing is this, is you can't be grateful for something that you feel you're entitled to. And so the tension that we experience is this tension between wanting to be a person who is experiencing a state of gratitude, who's grateful, and the fact that we have an inclination as human beings to feel entitled to things. We often feel like, hey, I should have that. And if I should have that, then why would I feel grateful for something that I think I should have? Let me make this make sense to you. An illustration from the last... 15 hours. Yesterday, I flew on an airplane. In theory, flying on an airplane should make me one of the most grateful people in the world. I live in a day and age where I can travel thousands of miles in a minimum amount of hours. I actually defy the laws of gravity, get into near outer space, move at speeds that I don't even know how they measure them. And then I land still in one piece in a new place that I wanted to go. I should experience a measurable gratitude that I can fly somewhere that yesterday I could be in California. And today I can be preaching right here in Washington. That's amazing. Like three generations ago, that wasn't a thing. But I wasn't very grateful yesterday, let me tell you why. I bought a ticket, I had my whole family down in California, we were celebrating my birthday down there, first time in 22 years that I did my birthday with my cousins, aunts and uncles and family, and mom was there, it was pretty awesome, and uh, you know, hold your applause. Uh, I'm old old now, I'm old now, that's all you need to know, I'm really old. But we had a plane ticket for yesterday, and our plane was supposed to leave at 1 o'clock out of Oakland. So because I'm a tyrant and I had all our family with us, uh, you know, the babies, the three littles, the eleven, seven, 7, and 5-year-old, I made us get there a full two hours early. Well, in fact, I got us there earlier because we had a rental car to return. So we returned the rental car, which took seconds, hopped right on the shuttle, which took seconds, which was awesome, got right over to the gate uh, or to the security checkpoint. There's like four people in line. That's always the time when you're two hours plus early where there's nobody in line, right? But you don't know. So we cruise through the line. Everything's fine and dandy. And I'm getting looks like we're going to spend all day at the airport, Dad. Thanks, right? I'm like, hey, we're here. Relax. We get on the plane at one o'clock. Everybody loads up. And the plane doesn't move. 115, 130, 140, 145. We're sitting here. Suddenly, in walk mechanics with bags. And they walk into the cockpit. And an announcement comes up. You may have noticed the mechanics. Small equipment problem. Don't worry about it. 45, 2 o'clock. We're still on the plane. Next announcement. We're on the phone with Boeing. They're trying to explain to us why this is happening, but don't worry. We should have it in a few minutes. Two o'clock, 205, 210, 215. So we're going to (laughs) deplane everyone while we work on this problem. Now, suddenly, everyone's getting up, getting off the plane. Now, you got to understand, we had this cute little row, because, you know, I'm a planner. We had five across, you know, baby adult, baby uh, 11-year-old. Like, we're fine, right? We're, we're all bunched in. We got the family. We're set. We get off the plane, and I walk up to the counter. Now, they're not prepared for 200 people to be walking off a plane. They have one worker, right, <laughs> that, that's there. And so he's getting swarmed, and, uh, and he hasn't met me yet. So I get to the front. <laughs> And he's got his speech all prepared. Plane should be operational in a little while. Just have a seat, it'll be fine. Do you have a connection that you're gonna miss? If you have a connection, we'll shuttle you to SFO or San Jose and try to help you or whatever, but you gotta go over here. And I said, No, 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 I don't need any of those things. When is the next flight and how many seats are on it? Because I've been in airports before, and nothing is money in the bank, right? Next flight's not till 6:45. I'll take it. I said, how many open seats? 88 open seats. Beautiful. I've got five, including three kids, so I need five across in that 88. Can you give me that? Okay, sir. So then he's working on it. Everybody's getting grumpy behind me because I'm making him work, you know, but I don't care. I'm working on it. I got, I got five, right? So he's working on it, and he's working on it, and then he prints out the new manifest or whatever says, okay, you're all set. And I said, well, do I need boarding passes or will my other boarding passes work? How does that work? Because you're not offering me boarding passes. He goes, you don't need boarding passes. You'll be fine. Bye. That was my fault. That was the moment that everything went sideways, right? I was fine with the plane not taking off. That's when everything went sideways. About a half hour later, they get on and they say, so we had to get all of your luggage off, so you're gonna have to leave the terminal, go back through security, and get your luggage. So I didn't have any luggage, but then I was like, oh, we have car seats. We're going to need car seats when we get up here, right? So I go out, back through security. My car seats are just laying on the floor because they're just in a bag or whatever, right? So I go back around to the gate. I'm telling you a long story, but it's crazy. Go back around to the gate. Well, it's not the time of any flights. There's nobody working. There's 20-something of us out here in a line needing to recheck our bags. Nobody's working. So, so I'm, I'm, I'm wearing a shirt that says, Something, something Christian on it. So I'm like, all right, I'm flying my colors. I can't, I can't get too bad, too mad here, right? I am in Oakland. Nobody knows me here anymore. So maybe I can, you know. I'm like, I'm like putting my shirt on inside out. No, I didn't do that. But uh, I'm like, okay, I'm going to be cool. This lady comes out. She's amazing. She's very sweet. But she's working her way through the line an hour, an hour and 15 minutes trying to get everybody helped out, out there. And uh, I get up to the front finally. And I said, okay, I'm going to recheck these bags for the 648 flight. They moved me to that flight. He didn't give me a boarding pass, but he said I'm on there. And she goes, oh, yeah, he put you on, but you're standby. I was like, wait, 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 I got, there was 88 open seats, and I told him I needed five seats, he told me I had five seats, he printed out the thing, he goes, well, she goes, well, I can put you in, but you'll be all in middle seats around the plane. I was like, I got little babies. So I don't know who wants to sit next to my crying five-year-old for an hour and a half, but we're getting on that plane. And so so now I'm stressed, right? I was doing pretty good until that moment. She's trying to help me, but she doesn't have control. She checks me. Now, Now security's forever. So now I'm waiting through security forever the second time through. I get up there, and now something new has happened. I went from pretty good on a plane, cute little family, all five across, grumpy, right, Then I'm on a later plane, and I was able to have a good attitude again. I was like, okay, good attitude. I got on the plane. We got seats. Now I don't have seats. Bad attitude. Grumpy. Do you see how that scale? Because a moment ago, I was not entitled to be on any flight. I was canceled. Then I got on the flight, and I was blessed. But then I had chairs, and then I didn't have chairs where I wanted to. And now I was grumpy again. And my state of entitlement kept going up and down. And my approach to every conversation changed by what I thought I was entitled to in that moment. Because we move through that stuff. Now, the next several hours, I'm waiting for someone to come to the gate who can put our family together, hopefully, and get somebody to move out of their seat. And how many of you know nobody wants to move to another middle seat if they got an aisle or whatever on a completely full plane when they've been sitting in the airport for an extra five hours? So they finally get someone to move. Like five minutes before, she calls me up. She's like, "Got someone to move? I got three across in the back." So it's me and the two littles in the back row. So I go, "Little person, little person, me on the aisle." And I look to the left, and two feet from my face, about two and a half feet, the toilet. (laughs) So let me just say, they told me we got three together. It's going to be awesome. I'm like, I'm so thankful. And I walk down the aisle, and I look, and I sit down, and I turn, and I go, I'm not thankful. And I don't know if you realize, but when people have been sitting at the airport for five hours and then they find extra five hours, so seven hours, some of them, they finally get on the plane and the plane takes off. They just all have to use the bathroom. And there's a line, the whole flight of the bathroom, there's a line at the bathroom and there is somebody's just whole body right here, every moment of the flight. And I'm just like, what is happening? And I was so ungrateful. What am I telling you that story for? Because you cannot be grateful for something once you feel entitled to it. It just changes. We go up and down based on our circumstance. When I didn't have a flight, and then I got a flight, I was grateful. Then I didn't have a chair, then I got a chair, and I was grateful. And then I got in the chair, and I lost my gratefulness. And that's kind of how our lives go up, down, up, down, up, down. You know, in soul keeping, uh, John Ortberg uh, asked each reader to challenge them this way. And I thought about challenging you guys to do this, but I didn't want to do it because I didn't want to wreck your day. But here was the challenge. The challenge was this, to take one whole day and start every conversation that day and every interaction you have that day with something discouraging, to be ungrateful. So every, every time you have an interaction with someone, start with a grumble. Hey, how are you doing? Oh, I didn't sleep very good. Hey, how are you? Oh, I'm not feeling so good. How are you doing? Oh, the kids have been a pain. Every conversation, every interaction, lead with something that's a grumble. Some of you know people who do that without it being a social experiment. Some of you do that without it being a social experiment. Knock it off. Every initial interaction, start it with something grumbly or complaining. Do it for a full 24 hours and then stick a thermometer in your soul see how you're doing on the inside. How did that affect you emotionally? Did it build you up? Did it take you down? Did your lens, your filter for the day, was it super negative? Did it affect you that way? Then he said, the next day, go and be intentional, and every conversation you have, every interaction you have, start with something uplifting uh, uh, that is something that you're thankful for. So the moment you see someone say, hey, how's it going? Man, I'm so excited for what's going to happen today. I'm so excited to be breathing today. My kids are doing great. They all have 10 fingers and 10 toes, and yesterday, I didn't know if that was going to happen. They're all breathing. And yesterday I was like one moment away from a headlock. But, but whatever it is, start an attitude of gratitude and then roll through that whole day and see the state of your soul. At the end. Why is that social? I don't think you have to do the social experiment to understand the implications. And I don't want to send you out here grumbling for a whole day and be like, Pastor, I had to do it. So I didn't want to do that. But it's true. You can imagine the difference if all your interactions either began with something that was negative and grumbly, that was unthankful, or something that was grateful. Now, throughout the scriptures, there's there's a lot of folks that had to deal with this idea of man, things are tough right now, and how do I manage that? But I think kind of the the, the king, the epicenter of all of that, was David. And I want to dive into a story from the life of David this morning because David was the one who wrote, how, why are you downcast, O oh my soul? He knew how to take a look of introspection at his heart and at his life and evaluate the state of his self. And so if you have your Bibles, I want you to jump to 1 Samuel chapter 30. And I'm going to take you through a few chapters. I'm going to paraphrase because we got the ministry fair coming and I want to give you room and time uh, to do all those things. But I'm going to take you into the, uh, to the life of David. And what's fascinating is David at this point, Is about 30 years old. Now, if you don't know much about David, you got to understand, at age 17, he is the seventh of seven brothers, or eight brothers, give or take, depending on how they do the math. He's one of the younger brothers. At age 17, he is the guy that has to go out and tend the sheep, while the other brothers have better jobs closer to the house. He's that kid. He's not very significant. If you're seventh in line, you're not going to inherit very much of the family estate and affairs. He's not entitled to very much. But at age 17, the prophet shows up and says, I'm here to anoint a king. And he sees all of David's brothers and says, they're not the ones, is there another one? And they go out in the field, they bring David back. And he says, here he is, he anoints him. At age 17, he believes and is told by the prophet, by God, that his destiny is to be the king. Not a shepherd, but a king. Now listen. I don't know if any of you know any 17 year old boys. I did youth ministry for a long, long time, and I also have the uh, experience of having been a 17 year old boy. But I will just tell you the truth at 17, boys are the worst humans on the planet. There's some exceptions, but here's the reality. Their brain and their body and their development, they're just in their worst little season of life. It's okay. God has mercy on them, and they, you know, they, they make it. But at 17, there's just a thing where you have all of the emotions and all of the physical attributes of a, of a man and still the wisdom of a teenager. So you can get into trouble really easily and not yet consider the consequences, some of you who are close to 17 are going like, oh, I'm not sure, sure, I agree. Trust me, when you're like my age, you'll look back and go, dang, my dumbest year was 17. <laughs> but it's just true. I can tell you 15 years of youth ministry. And here's the thing, at 17, he finds out, not am I going to be this, I'm going to be the king. Can you imagine the swagger that would come into a 17-year-old's heart? I'm not going to be a shepherd, I'm going to be a king. So here's David, 17 years old, he finds out that's who he's going to be. That's his life. And you know the story. He's out serving sandwiches in the battlegrounds. His brothers are old enough to serve. He's not serving. And he hears this taunt from this giant of a man, Goliath. And he's taunting the people of God. And he's saying, I'm going to fight you. And they're all afraid of him. And David at 17, he's like, I'm, I, he knows he's supposed to be the king. He says, who's that guy who's taunting the people of God? And he's got Swagger. And he's got good aim. So he loads up his sling and he loads up the rocks and he's, boom, 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 and he nails Goliath. Goliath goes down, chops off his head. It's amazing. Takes out Goliath. And then he becomes part of the king's court. Not only is he 17, knows he's going to be the king, kills Goliath. He's a good musician. Come on, you know some good musicians. Biggest he goes on the planet. Yeah, I'm jealous. I wish I could play or sing anything, right? He's a stud musician. So he plays for the king's court, and he's playing for the king's court. And while he's playing for the king's court, he hears a song that the ladies start singing about him because of his success in battle. And the ladies make up a song. And the song that the ladies are singing sounds like this. The king who saw has killed his thousands, but David, his tens of thousands. Imagine. The swelling of emotion and the potential for ego when the number one hit in all the land, top 40, is, check out David. He's awesome. David's playing. He's, like, giving him a melody in the background. He's like, yeah. No, I'm teasing, right? But he's 17. 17. And this is what's supposed to happen for him. And he's playing. And so no wonder the scriptures tell us that Saul begins to get a headache and be aggressive and starts looking at David aggressively. And randomly at certain intervals, he just grabs a spear and chucks it at him. He's like, why so much blessing and provision in this guy's life? And then Saul, uh, to his discredit, uh, as the king, eventually kind of disobeys God, dishonors God, doesn't trust God. And so God reveals to him, I'm taking the kingdom from you, and I'm giving it to someone who I've prepared And so David finds himself in this situation where he's he's been pulled up from one environment to a completely different environment. The potential and the dream for his life, there's no limit to it. The king, he's talented. He's a good warrior. The the chicks all dig him. But Saul wants him dead. Saul looks at him and says, this threat to me. So through the course of the next 13 years, they do this dance. And for for a season, David is able to honor Saul. um, And then Saul still tries to want to kill him and take him out. So eventually, David finds himself in this position. He's almost 30 years old now. It's been 13 years since the swagger of 17-year-old David came onto the scene. I'll take out Goliath. I'll play the songs. The chicks all dig me. But then 13 years, and he's still not the king. Some of you just need to hear. Sometimes the promise of God and even the ones he gave you in your teenage years are still coming true. You just got to be faithful to God in the interim. You still got to walk with God. You got to trust God. And the promise that he gave you, even if it was in your teenage years, can still come true today. But here's David. He now has a, a very significant crew of warriors that he fights with, about 600. He rolls about 600 deep for those of you that are from the hood. (laughs) And Saul has now been fed up with him. As a matter of fact, the aggressive attacks from Saul are so bad that David has to leave Israel to survive. And he and 600 of his men actually go and live with the Philistines. Remember Goliath? He was one of those guys. At this point in history, the Philistines have now really militarized They have gone from kind of the seafaring people who are just trying to culturally indoctrinate the Israelites to saying, we're just going to take these guys out. And they have the sophistication to do it. They have chariots and metal weapons. They're iron workers. They're just better at warfare than the Israelites are. And so David, who has a posse of about 600 fighting men and their families with him, goes to Achish, the king of the uh, Philistines, and says, hey, can we hang with you? And he says, yeah, we'll take you in. And he goes and he moves into a land called Ziklag. And at Ziklag, he stays for about a year and four months. I want you to think about a long year and four months of living with the enemy, living in an environment where you don't want to be. It's not the people that you want to be with. It's actually the people that you want to defeat. But you got to live with them because they're treating you better than the people who are supposed to love you. So for a year and a half, he takes his fighting men and they live at Ziklag. And he works for King Achish. And he becomes, because he's honorable, one of the greatest warriors for King Achish. And they fight the Amalekites and they fight all of these other people. But he doesn't want to fight the Israelites because those are his people. It's kind of like this. Um, I lived in Eugene Springfield area for a lot of years. I lived among duck country, Oregon duck people. I'm not an Oregon duck person. But I could cheer for the Oregon Ducks to beat other teams, because what do I care about those other teams either? But sometimes they would play the Cal Bears. And then I would have to change my tune a little bit, because those are my people. And I couldn't have those guys. So I wanted to use a Seattle-San Francisco thing, but I didn't think you guys can handle it. (laughs) So I think we can all agree nobody likes the Ducks in here, right? They're the enemy. All right, cool. But I had to align and just be okay in territory with the enemy. But suddenly when they went to war with my team, I had to kind of be in a neutral position. And here's what's happening as we catch up in 1 Samuel chapter 30. Suddenly King Achish has had enough of the Israelites, and he mounts up a massive army to go out and wipe out the Israelites once and for all. But David's on the wrong team in his season of waiting for God's promises, he's found himself displaced so far from the promise that he thinks uh, God has for his life, and he's literally fighting for the wrong side. And the king comes to him and says, hey, I want you to join us. We're going to battle against the Israelites. And David says, well, you'll see what I do. Kind of stays ambiguous, because he doesn't know. He hasn't really figured out what he's gonna do. But he and his 600 men march from Ziklag to the battlefield. It's about 50 miles and during the march, some of Achish's soldier, or generals start talking, and they're like, why are we bringing these guys to go fight their own family and friends? Doesn't it seem unwise, king, that we're bringing David and his 600 buff dudes to go to battle with us? And the king's like, ah, don't worry about David. We trust David. He's wiped out so many. You should have seen him wiping out the Amalekites. He's tough. The favor of his God's on him. If he fights for us, we can't lose. And they're like, ah, can you imagine if 600 buff Fighting men turn on us in the middle of the battlefield and they're on our side of the line. That's not going to work. And finally, King Achish is like, okay, fine. If you won't go fight with him, I'll tell David to go back. 50 miles of marching, King Achish goes to David and he's like, bro, I know you said you fight for us. You've been cool. Like, we get it, but you need to go home. David's like, oh, tells his men, all right, we got to turn around. 50 miles back home to Ziklag. So they're marching the 600 men back to Ziklag, and they get to Ziklag, and the unthinkable has happened. While all the fighting men have left, the Amalekites came in and wiped out the city. And when they wiped out the city, all the wives and all the kids were there. So that's where we pick up in the story in uh, uh, 1 Samuel chapter 30. Verse 1 it says now when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day third day three days to march the 50 miles the Amalekites had made a raid against the Negev and against Ziklag they'd overcome Ziklag and burned it with fire and taken captive all the women who were in it both uh, and the and all who were in it both small and great they killed no one but carried them off and went on their way and when David and his men came to the city they found it burned with fire and their wives and their sons and their daughters were taken captive Then David and the people who were with him raised their voices, and listen to this, they wept until they had no more strength to weep. Have you ever been so emotionally spent that it just has to come out? We're talking about 13 years waiting on a promise. A group of loyal friends who have your back, and you led them, and now their families are gone. You come home to the place where your wife and kid were supposed to be safe, and it's just wiped out. And it says he wept until they had no more strength to weep. Verse 5, David's two wives had also been taken captive, Ahinoam um, of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. Verse 6, and David was greatly distressed for the people spoke of stoning him because all the people were bitter in soul, each for his own sons and daughters. Listen, he's been leading these 600 men for um, at least a year and a half basically here at Ziklag. He's weeping. His his family's gone. And what does he hear over his shoulders? He hears this. Hey, pick up some rocks. Let's peg this guy and leave. Let's just chuck some rocks at this guy. We're going to just take him out because he led us out here. And since it's his fault, let's just drill him with some rocks, and we're going home. Can you imagine the rumbles of that and the emotion of that? And then the scriptures tell us something incredible. He hears this, he's broken, he's emotional, he hasn't got his way. This isn't what he wanted to see happen. He doesn't wanna be in Ziklag either. He didn't wanna bring his family here. He wanted to be faithful to God and be in his land with his people. He just wanted to obey God and receive the blessing that God had promised him. He didn't try to hurt Saul, Saul tried to hurt him. He hasn't done anything to initiate all of this. And now he's lost everything and his friends have turned on him as well. And it says, but David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. I like the King James Version. It says, encouraged himself in the Lord his God. What's powerful about this is there's this reality. When we hit crisis, when we hit the tough moments of our lives, when we hit the hardest moments of our lives, what is our first reaction? What do we do first? Because in a moment, we're gonna see his strategy and his game plan. But the first thing he does, the first thing he does is he goes to the Lord and he says he's strengthening, he encourages himself. David learned the truth. He learned that you can talk yourself into success or you can talk yourself into failure. He learned that he would believe whatever voice was going on inside of his heart. And so he had to address the voice in his mind and in his heart before he did anything else. And here's the problem. When we're going through a difficult time, when the wheels start to come off, when we're having pressure points and things aren't working out the way we wanna do it, the first thing we wanna do is get a solution to the problem. Stock market's crashing. What do I need to do with my money? Let's move it around. This relationship went bad. Who do I have to call? Who do I have to talk to? What do I have to do? We go into fix-it mode or blaming mode or grumpy mode. But the first thing David says is, I have to strengthen my soul, my inside. I have to remind myself who I am and who God is and what the promises of God are so that I know what to do from there. Listen, I was thinking about a time I had to deal with this when uh, we were off planting the church. I had a great, uh, a great job in the community. I had a union job. It was working great and things were going really good. And someone from a nonprofit, a faith-based nonprofit said, hey, we really want you to come and work for us. And I, and I remember thinking, oh, it's going to be so impactful. It's going to matter. Uh, I'm going to go and work for these guys. And, and uh, it's going to kind of align with what I'm doing, planting the church and all these things. This will be amazing. And I went and worked with them and it was great for two years until they ran out of money. And they said, hey, we love everything you've done, but we're out of money. So you can't do this anymore. And I found myself unemployed again while I'm out here trying to plant this church. And I had to do something I never. So here's what happened to me. I immediately went into panic mode. I was like, oh, how am I gonna pay my bills? What am I gonna tell my wife? How are we gonna survive? How are we gonna eat? What are we gonna do? And I went to the employment office. I'd never been to an employment office like this before. I remember I walked in and I was so discouraged. I was so discouraged. God, I tried to hear your voice. God, I'm sacrificing trying to start a new ministry. God, I left a stable union job to go work for a nonprofit because I thought it would have more kingdom impact. I, I tried to hear from you and obey. And all I'm doing is trying to obey, and I'm walking into an employment office. And I was mad. And there's a thing. I, just, I don't know if you've ever been in an employment office. It just doesn't smell like anywhere else. It doesn't. I opened the door, and the smell kind of came over And I just had this emotional moment. I said, God, you did this to me. You did this to me. Then I started making a mental list of everyone who I had listened to when I said yes to the other job. And they did this to me. And they did this to me. And they did this to me. And I started, and what happened? My sense of entitlement I'm following God. I shouldn't go through a difficult time. I'm trying to hear God was swelling up in me. And I had to leave. And I had to get away and I had to go recalibrate and I had to get before God and I had to do what David did. I had to say, okay, I need to encourage myself in the Lord. And I had to go back and I had to start thinking, God, let's think about where you've brought me from. I was here and you brought me to here and you didn't leave me hanging when I was there. And we had a rough season here, but you showed up. And then we were doing really good here and you called us to the next thing. And you were faithful in the next thing. And it maybe didn't all look like everything I ever thought, but it was better because you were in it. And then I went to the next thing. And suddenly my strength started to come back. My faith started to come back. I started to learn to appreciate the things that God had done. And here's David. The guy who wrote all these Psalms, who stood out in the field and tended sheep and worshiped God and battled the bear and won and battled the lion and won and battled Goliath and won, battled the Philistines and won, survives assassination attempts from Saul, has been successful even when he's working for the enemy in order to protect his life. And now something difficult has happened. The darkest moment of his life up until this point has happened. And you know what he doesn't do? He doesn't go, forget about it, I'm out. He says, okay, God, let me remember who you are. Let me remember that I was anointed, that I was called, that there's a destiny, that there's a hope for me, that there's a plan for me. And he strengthens his soul, his inner man. And then he comes up with a plan. He doesn't start with a plan. Come on, some of us just want a plan and then we're okay. First he remembers who he is. Then he remembers what God's called him to. And then he comes up with a plan. And the plan is pretty simple. You can see verses seven through 10. He just says, I'm gonna call the priest in and we're gonna hear from God. And God's gonna give us advice on whether or not we should chase these guys down or not chase them down. They decide to chase them down. There's 600 of them. They've marched 50 miles to battle 50 miles back and now they got to go on the march to catch up with people who have taken their family and start marching again they're tired they're exhausted but their families are at stake so they go they start marching along they hit a water that area where they have to pass the river and about 200 of them stay behind because they're just exhausted he leaves supplies with them and 400 of them go on they find a guy on the side of the road uh, who's uh, exhausted and dehydrated. And it uh, turns out he is with the Amalekites. And for, uh, if they'll take care of him, he'll say where the Amalekites are. So they strike a deal and they find out where the Amalekites are and they show up. They've been marching now, maybe, maybe 120, 130 miles or so. And they come upon the Amalekite army and they're way outnumbered. And they say, we've heard from God. We're not worried about this. See, they've strengthened themselves on the inner, on the inner side. They storm into the Amalekites. They go ham on them. They're just, whack, whack, taking them all out. They totally defeat them. And so that, you know there's a lot of Amalekites because about 400 of them escape on camels and then everybody else gets wiped out and they recover, their families are still there. Their kids are still there, haven't been harmed. As a matter of fact, they recover so much loot from the battle that when they get back to the other 200, they're like, ah, oh, should we share with you guys? You didn't kind of go the rest of the way. And David's like, listen, we all heard from God. We all move this direction. We all uh, get to the spoils of war. And he kind of reunites his men behind him by being generous and sharing, uh, even though not all of them were on the same page. And then because he's a strategist, he sends a part of the treasure up north to his his people, the Israelites, saying, hey, Kind of a statement, I'm not in the battle where you're getting wiped out right now, but in the battle where I am at, I'm just blessing you and providing for you guys, right? Three days go by, he's back at Ziklag with his family, and he gets a report from the battle. Remember, the Philistines still went out to go fight the Israelites. He just wasn't with them. The report from the battle comes to him that Saul has died, King Saul has died. Jonathan, his best friend in that time, died, and that the Israelites had been routed. But the man who comes to him, he says, How do you know this? And he says, Well, I saw Saul, and he had fallen on his spear because he didn't want the Philistines to have credit for killing him. And he hadn't quite died yet. And when I saw him, he said, Finish me off so that the Philistines don't get to kill me. So I finished Saul off, and here's his crown, and here's his bracelet, and you're now the king. Now, there's a lot of stuff in there, but here's what I want you to catch. For 13 years, he was entitled to be the king. But just because he was entitled to be the king, he didn't go and wrest that away outside of the timing of God. And then 13 years later, he's in a year and a half depressive drought. None of the things are happening the way he thinks they should happen. None of the things, he's living in Ziklag. This is the enemy's territory. This isn't the promised land. He's living with the Philistines. These aren't his people. He's got 600 of his closest guys and their families, and they're all looking at him saying, aren't you supposed to be king? What's going on here? And in the midst of all of that, he suffers one of the most brutal emotional blows. He gets rejected uh, out of uh, fighting for the Philistines, kind of to God's mercy, comes home and his family's wiped out, he thinks. He doesn't know they're not dead. He hits the most emotional moment and it's three days away from God bringing in his greatest victory and putting him on the throne and handing the crown to him. But he didn't go and chase the crown. He trusted God and God brought the crown to him. Now, funny tag at the end of the story, David's not particularly thrilled with the guy that killed Saul. He actually tells the guy, how dare you put your hand on the Lord's anointed? And he calls one of his buddies over and he's like, hey, kill this guy. And he does. They kill that guy. What's the moral of that story? The moral of the story is some of us are trying to accelerate the process, even in somebody else's life, and we just got to trust God. Just trust God. And David said, don't get in the process. Don't try to force it. Don't kill somebody that God loves in order to promote somebody else that God also loves. Don't push it. But David does that, all of those things. So let me give you some practical stuff. David encouraged himself. The men rally, they defeat the enemy. Within three days, his world turns around. Some of us are just a few days away from God providing the blessing that he's promised that he's gonna provide, but it's been pretty dark for a while. And the difference between how our soul handles that time is: Do we know how to strengthen our inner person in those moments? Do we know how to be grateful for the things God has done? Let me give you three quick, easy things um, to do that, because gratitude's all about perspective. Actually, first, before I do that, uh, uh, Paul the same the same thing. You've you've seen this in Galatians. Paul says it this way: He says, "Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we'll reap a harvest." If we don't give up, it's the same language. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. Paul says, don't give up. I like the King James version. It says, you're going to feel like you're about to faint, don't faint. When you feel like you're about to faint, don't faint. When you feel like you're about to give up, don't give up. You're just around the corner from God's provision and blessing. So, how do you stay grateful? Let me give you three things to focus on. How do we cultivate a soul that's experiencing gratitude? You gotta consider three things. When I'm not feeling very grateful, I go back to these three things. The first thing i go back to is the benefit. What has God provided? When I'm not feeling very grateful, I go back and I go, God, what have you already done? What is my story so far? How have you showed up? You sent your son for me. Let's start there. I'm free. My eternal Life and destiny is taken care of by you and nothing else I experience in here in this time zone can even contemplate or compare with that. Let's start right there. Let's look at the other blessings and provi- provision you've given me. So here's the problem. I felt really blessed when I knew I got on the next airplane and it just took one grumpy thing. You're not sitting where you want to sit that I totally lost all of that and I got to go back and say, I'm still going to get home. I'm going to travel thousands of miles in an hour and a half. It's going to be awesome you got to look back and remember the benefit, what God's already provided. The second thing you got to recognize is the benefactor. you got to remember who God is. you got to remember what God's already done and that God has good intentions for you. Here's the thing that sometimes hurts when we're not feeling grateful. We forget that our dad in heaven, our father in heaven, actually wants good things for us. We're like, my situation's been so frustrating. I've been in the storm. Things aren't working out the way I want them to work out. And God's like, don't forget who I am. Don't forget my character. Don't forget that I care about you. Don't forget that my word has told you that I'm so invested in you that I know how many hairs are on your head at any given moment. For some of us, that's easy for him to count. For others, it takes a little bit longer. I'm not sure if that includes the beard, Charlie. Charlie. <laughs> But it says at any given time, he knows how many hairs are on your head. He's like, I'm invested. His word says, if you ask me for bread, I'm not going to give you a stone. What kind of father would do that? He's saying, don't forget what I've done for you, but don't forget my character. Don't forget what I'm like. Don't forget that I'm good. Don't forget that even though you're walking through a storm and a difficulty, I've promised you that you'll never be alone. Don't forget that about me. And the last thing we got to remember is the beneficiary, that God wants to do something for you personally. He's invested in you personally. It's not just generic. It's not just a generic love that he has for the world. It's personal. It's intentional. It's invested in you. He loves and cares for you. He designed you. Ephesians tells us that you're God's masterpiece, literally designed and crafted by him. He cares for you. He has a plan for you. He he talks about times in the, and even in the womb where he begins destiny principles for people. He is invested in you and he cares for you. It's not impersonal. I think sometimes we go, yeah, God, you're big and you're awesome. You just don't care about me. When we're struggling with gratitude, when we're struggling with this sense of entitlement, God calls us back to these moments. When we take things for granted, when we believe we just deserve what we get, we'll lose our gratefulness. Wortberg says it this way in his book. He says, you cannot be grateful for something you feel you are entitled to. You cannot be grateful to something you feel you're entitled to. If you look around and you believe everything around you is because of your own resourcefulness, you will develop an attitude of entitlement. If you look around and you go, yeah, I got this done, and I made good plans over here, and I invested wisely over here, and I landed the girl over here, or I landed the guy over here, or I got the house. you know If your whole world is like putting out on your Facebook stream all the things you've managed to do, he says, you're going to have a really hard time because you're going to develop an attitude of entitlement. You see, the more you think you're entitled to, the less you'll be grateful for. The more you think you're entitled to, the less you'll be grateful for. And we are designed by default to pivot to entitlement. The thing that we didn't even know existed a few minutes ago, we think we should have right now. I don't even know what's on the iPhone X, but I should have all those things. I should have all those things. I don't even know if I'm going to use them, but my, my thing better be able to do all the things. Why? Because I'm entitled. Right? Did you know? I, I realized I didn't even know this was a thing. My TV goes into the thousands now. 1004 zero zero is a channel. And it better be. Because if it exists, I should have it. I think it's the same channel as it's on channel 4 and 104. But if I type 1004, zero zero it better be there. Why? The more you think you're entitled to, the less you'll be grateful for. It's just true. The bigger the sense of entitlement we have, the less grateful that we are. So we got to train ourselves to be more grateful. How do we do it? Here's a simple challenge for you. Write some letters to people who have invested and poured into your life, explaining to them directly what an impact they've had on your life. Find a couple people, send an email, write a letter, do something personal who have had a massive impact on your life, an important impact on your life. They may not even realize it and just explain, articulate the best that you can. Hey, you may not even realize this, but you believed in me, you cared for me. You knew I wasn't telling the truth, but you loved me anyways. I was a hot mess at this time and you invested in me. You didn't realize it. you sent me a a gift card or a check or something and I didn't even have groceries and you paid for whatever it is, someone that came into your life, intercepted and you'll begin to cultivate an idea that many of the people God has sent in your life have been an incredible blessing to you. Spend a little time, write a list of those people. Pick one a day or one a week even if you have to and do some things and meet with some of those people face-to-face and give it to them. Say, hey, I just want you to know, here's something, you've been just a real blessing in my life. I want, I want to give this to you. I just want you to hear that and know that. And they'll be like, "Wow, oh, that's weird. It's whatever, I was just doing my thing. And you're like, no, you don't understand. It's made an impact in my life. Cultivate that attitude. Maybe list some of the things you're really grateful for. And pray and thank God for them. Here's the thing. We get into our prayer moments and it's very easy for us to just bust into our list. God, thanks for all the amazing things that you've done. Now, here's the thing. Can you fix my kids? Can you fix my spouse? Can you fix my finances? Can you fix my job? Can you fix my car's not working right now? Can you fix? And we start laying into our list of things that we're needy of. And that's okay. God's big. He can handle our needs. But take a little time. Write out things that you're actually grateful for. God, thanks so much for my kids. And here's things I'm grateful for in each of them. Thanks so much for my spouse. Here's things I'm grateful. Thanks so much for my life. Here's the things I'm grateful for. Thanks so much that I've been able to provide up until this point for my life. Here's the things I'm grateful for. And take some time when you get before God and just say, God, help me to be grateful and remember the awesome things that you've done. Help me to remember. Maybe it was five years ago and you had something amazing happen and you just, it comes to mind and you go, God, five years ago that you were, I, I don't want to forget how faithful you were. I had no plan to be able to do this. I didn't know where I was going to be. I didn't know where I was going to sleep. I didn't know where the thing was and you showed up and you blessed me. Hey, you know, a few years ago something happened and I almost could have died and I, I never even think about saying thanks that you spared me, that you saved me, that I'm still here today. Take time and be cultivate gratefulness that way. List those things and pray. Thornton Wilder, the author, says we can only be said to be alive in those moments when our hearts are conscious of our treasures. What's he saying? He's saying our soul comes alive. Our inner person comes alive when we're aware of how much blessing and provision we've really received. God, thanks. Thanks that I live in a place where I could just come and worship. Some Puerto Rican shouts at me for 45 minutes every week. (laughs) Challenges my heart. Thanks. Thanks. We're going to transition and, and, uh, and close here in just a minute, but I, I'm going to leave us some time at the end to kind of check out the ministry fair, and, and uh, I'll tell you a little bit about that. But I was thinking about how when we're really grateful, it just pours out of us. When we're thankful, it just comes through us when we recognize how faithful God's been, then when we get to bless other people and share that provision and blessing, and then we get to function the way God designed the body of God to work, the church to work. We get to release our strength and resources to help and bless other people. It just pours out of us. And then we keep the cycle of gratitude alive in others and we get the blessing. We go like, God, thanks. You know, some of the greatest things I get to thank God for, God, thanks for the time where you put me in the right position that I could serve and bless that person and it was so impactful for them. And you actually used me to, Be you in that environment. That was amazing. Thanks, God. And that's why when we read Galatians 6, and it says, Don't become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we'll reap a harvest if we don't give up, it's so important. And verse 10 says, Therefore, as we have opportunity, do good to all people, especially to the family of believers. Create some margin to pour out some of that gratitude and be a blessing for somebody else. So here's how we're going to close. Across the room, in the back, there's a bunch of areas where you can engage. And here's what's so cool about this body of believers. Many of you have come up and said, hey, I'm interested. You know, how can I get involved? How can I do things? And uh, I don't, I, we haven't had any problem with people being interested. Where we've had problem is just our system so that you know how to get in so you can help. And so we want to clarify the path to do that. And, uh, and that's part of what we're doing today. And so I put these little cards on all of your things. And here's all I'm going to ask you to do. If you've been volunteering for a million years in a bunch of areas, what I don't want you to do is fill this out and then go to the area where you already volunteer and just hand it to them and say, yep, I'm still here, right? We know that. And if you're doing a bunch of areas, don't even feel pressure. And if you're visiting, feel no pressure at all. But if this is home and you're part of the body and you're thinking, how do I I get involved? How do I get a step out there? Let me tell you two things. One is, there's a typo on the front where it says Ephesians 6.9. It should say Galatians 6.9. So don't read Ephesians 6.9 and then read this because it's hilarious, which all of you will now do, but it's pretty funny. (laughs) Also, all I want you to do on the back, it says, I want you to volunteer, is just put your name, phone, and email. And then across the back, there's areas. Now listen, over here is outreach and church property. I talk all the time now about what we're doing over at Ziger. We got 114 meals per weekend that we're doing over there. We're getting ready to do a missions trip to Mexico. Some of you have emailed me asking about that. Charlie's right here in the front. He'll be right over there. You should know something. In a couple weeks, we're gonna do a video. We had people over at Ziger filling backpacks of food, overhearing children talk about how excited they were to get a backpack because they were gonna be able to eat this weekend. Listen, hold it together. This is my daddy heart, not my pastor's heart. These are babies that live here that that didn't know if they were going to eat this weekend until we showed up with a backpack full of food. So if you don't think that what we do here matters, it matters. It's not making an impact, it matters. So over here, outreach, Hub them with the property, um, small groups and Willow Gardens, that's a, a, an old folks home where we volunteer. We actually have a service that we do every other weekend. Most of you don't even know about it, where we serve those that are um, over at Willow Gardens and we do a church service for them. We do a message, worship, we do everything for them. And we just pour out and we're the love of God for, for a generation that can't get out of the home anymore to do that. Um, women's ministry, compassionate care is back there. Listen, some of you are like, I really love people but I don't want to talk to anybody. Compassionate care writes cards. They get meals together for people who are, uh, who are sick or going to the hospital. They do care ministry. Some of you are like, I would really love to do that as long as you don't make me talk to a bunch of people face-to-face. Compassionate care can do that. Service coordinators are my boss. They're looking at me with a stink eye right now because I'm five minutes over when I said I would be done. Worship team, if you play worship, sing worship and you are gifted, not just you have a great heart but you have some skill with it. Come on, church. We can be honest in church. Don't put my team in the situation where they have to tell you you don't have any talent. If you have talent, I don't have any talent. I don't sing with the microphone, okay? It's not my skill set, and if it's not your skill set, just be honest about it. They're right there. They would love to work with you. Sound and media and tech. Some of you are just good with buttons and technology, and you're interested in being a part of that. The youth, cafe, marriage ministries back there, kingdom kids. We need so many people to pour, and what we do in kids is just amazing. Our preschool uh, is looking for volunteers. Discover ministry school. Some of you have been like, I'm ready to take my faith to the next level. Level, and I need to get uh, uh, prepared and trained for that. We have an opportunity every Tuesday night for that to happen. Hospitality, listen, some of you are just like, I don't know anybody. And I'm like, can you shake hands? Can you be nice? Do you have that skill set? We're completely revamping, rebuilding the hospitality team and, uh, and we'll, be, we'll be pouring that. Those are all areas. So, so I'm gonna give you 10 seconds, write your name out on your card. And if you don't give it to anybody, I won't judge you, but at least fill the card out. And then I just want you to take a moment and just pray and say, God, is there some area where you would have me go? And if you do two or three, that's fine. Maybe you're a big ambitious, And you're not making a commitment. You're just saying, I'm interested in being contacted. Give me some more information. And I'm going to pray. There's pens in front of you. Don't be shy. Jesus, thanks for everything you do. Thanks for being faithful to us. Thanks for teaching us to strengthen ourselves and encourage ourselves. Thanks for giving us so much reason to be encouraged. Thanks for being the benefit, blessing us and and, and providing for us. Thanks for being the benefactor and loving us and taking care of us. And thanks that we're the beneficiary, that we get to receive. God, freely you've given, freely we've received. Thank you. For your faithfulness and loving us. Thanks for all the thanks for giving us this church and a place where we can come and just be the body of Christ. And thanks for those that are here that are still checking things out and trying. And I just pray that they would hear your heart for this community in this place and just see that this is what we want to do. We just want to love people, serve them, see them know the incredible love that we got to experience that frees us up and changes things. Thanks for that. We just love you in Jesus' name. Amen.